I've been looking forward to this. I've, I've got a uh, story I want to share with you this morning. That's what the sermon is going to be. And uh, it's going to be in story form. Uh, the book of Ruth is in the Old Testament. If you know that, it's four chapters long. I'm not going to read all four chapters. Instead, I'm going to tell the story of Ruth. Now, that means in some ways I've had to use my own imagination just to kind of make it flow. But uh, I promise you it is absolutely true to the story. The point of the story, the points in the story, um, it is absolutely accurate to that. And you can check on me by reading the four chapters of Ruth uh, this afternoon instead of football. I think that would, I think that would work. But um, yeah, I think uh, so. Let me just make sure, tell you what the setting here. The book of Ruth. You'll hear this in the very first sentence that I give to you. Is set in the time of the judges. Now, the time of the judges was a four hundred year period after the uh, people of Israel, the Hebrews, had entered the promised land, and uh, then before they would have their first king. It was a loose federation of 12 tribes, pretty independent um, tribes that uh, from time to time would come together under a charismatic leader, a judge, uh, to fight against some foreign invader or power. Usually, well, not usually, every time in the book of Judges, uh, that foreign power was allowed by God to come in because the people had been involved in idolatry, in, in worship of other gods. Worship no gods but me, God had said. That's the number one commandment. Everything else flows out of that. Everything in the Old Testament flows out of that one commandment. Worship no gods but me. And uh, when the people would worship other gods, which if you know anything about the Old Testament, they did all the time, um, then God would remove his hand of blessing, come in, They'd cry out for deliverance. God would hear their cries, and he'd send a Gideon, a Samson, a Deborah. Remember some of those names? And he would send them to rescue the people. So this story is set in that era, but it doesn't get in to, uh, to much of that, all right? But that's the setting for it, and uh, then we might circle back to that in the end. Pray with me, and then I'll tell you the story, all right? Uh, God, uh, uh, you are in our midst. Uh, we have invited you. We have welcomed you. You are here by your spirit. Teach us in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as I said, her story took place towards the end of the time of the Judges. She was already old beyond her years, this woman who, who had borne so much pain, so much loss. Call me Mara, she said, because the Almighty God has made my life bitter. So call me bitter. Call me Mara. But Naomi, 
the name means pleasant one, Naomi was her given name, and that name fit her so well for so very long. Elimelech, the husband of her youth, the father of her sons, told her as much, Naomi, pleasant one, you bless my life. I thank the Lord for you every day. But that was before she felt betrayed. Betrayed by the God who had promised so much. Had not the Almighty made promises to her ancestors, Abraham and Sarah, promises that were handed down from one generation to the next among the family of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, land and children forever. That was the promise, land and children forever. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land I will give you as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. Such pleasant words. Now bitter to Naomi, bitter to Mara. It began with a famine in the land, this promised land that was supposed to flow perpetually with milk and honey and abundance. But the relentless heat of the sun combined with day after day after day of cloudless skies went on to produce the worst drought in memory. Seeds that sprouted early slowly withered and died. Had God gone back on his promise? The very ground, the land, including the small plot of ground that belonged to Elimelech and Naomi, seemed to die before their very eyes from the lack of rains. So the decision was made. Naomi and Elimelech with their boys, Malin and Killian, walked away from their land and left the land of promise for Moab. Moab, an unlikely choice. Moab, on the other side of the Jordan River, back in the direction of Egypt, the land of slavery. Moab, whose king Eglon ruled harshly over Israel for 18 years until God raised up the judge Ehud to be Israel's deliverer. Moab, where the people worshipped Shamash and were known to engage in child sacrifice. Moab was an unlikely choice, but there was food in Moab and jobs and survival. So Elimelech made the decision to live for a while in the country of Moab. It won't be, it won't be for long, Naomi, Elimelech had said, just for a while until the sun releases its grip on our land and the Almighty sends forth his rains once more, just for a while. So they moved to Moab and lived there, just for a while. But then he died. Elimelech, he just up and died on her one day, not long after they'd arrived in Moab. Unthinkable agony, unimaginable grief, a widow in a foreign land, 
And Naomi knew who to blame. It was the Almighty who took her husband. But at least he left her with two sons. These were male-dominated days, after all, strong patriarchal societies. A woman with no father or husband or sons to provide for her quickly found herself in a difficult, desperate, even destitute position. But Naomi still had Malin and Killian. And soon, her boys took themselves wives, Moabite wives. Yes, both boys had married outside the tribe. That was a big deal for Naomi at first. It was tough being a mother-in-law to two young women who were brought up in such different religious and cultural backgrounds, but Orpah and Ruth turned out to be wonderful wives to her sons and a blessing to their mother-in-law. Times were good again for Naomi, except for the fact that neither of the Moabite women seemed able to conceive children for her sons, but they were surviving. And Naomi remained hopeful that one day the Almighty would yet bless her with grandchildren to dote on and spoil. Ten years passed. The bitter times returned. The widow with two sons became a widow with no sons. The Almighty took her boys from her as well and left her with a pair of grieving daughters-in-law, three widows with no means of support. Desperate times, bitter times. Naomi is angry and confused, stuck in the barren desert of grief. She feels betrayed, I imagine, and abandoned by the God whose promises go unfulfilled, the God she holds responsible for her misfortune. And in her prayer, she tells him so. Yes, she still prays. It's an old habit. Or maybe it tells us that she hasn't totally given up on the God of Abraham and Sarah. While she now treats God as her antagonist, she does not deny his presence. She still prays. And while Naomi cannot see it, God is nevertheless behind the scenes still at work. Word comes to Naomi in Moab that the drought has lifted, and the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them. Quickly she packs what little she has and sets out for home, Orpah and Ruth in tow. However, not far down the road, Naomi has second thoughts, not about her going home, but about taking Orpah and Ruth with her. In Israel, they will both be widows and foreigners, Moabite widows. Go back, she said to them. Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord be kind to you as you have been kind to my dead sons and to me. May the Lord give each of you a new home and a new husband and children. And the three widows embraced and kissed and wept as Naomi said her goodbyes. 
that Orpah and Ruth would have no part of it. No, they said, we will go back with you to live with your people. Naomi pleads, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have more sons who could become your husbands? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. Sort of like saying, I'm bad luck. You don't want to hit your futures to an old widow whom God has turned against. Orpah, Orpah relents, kisses Naomi goodbye, walks away. But Naomi, but Ruth rather, would not let Naomi go. Don't tell me to leave you. Don't tell me to turn my back on you. Where you go, I go. Where you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And they can bury me beside you. May the Lord deal with me severely if even death separates you and me. And so the two widows walked together down the road to Bethlehem in Judah with an uncertain future before them. And while neither of them could see beyond their dire circumstances, God had not forgotten and was nevertheless still at work. Bethlehem. At last they entered the village that had been Naomi's home. But home is not what it was ten years earlier. The, the little piece of land she considered hers was really not hers, never really hers. It belonged to her husband. Women didn't own land. The land was still there, but in the name of Elimelech, Malin, and Killian. So Naomi and Ruth have no means of support and no husbands or sons to care for them. I went away full, says Naomi, says Mara, but the Lord has brought me back empty. But Ruth, faithful and loving Ruth, devoted to Naomi and determined to care for her, learns about the law of gleaning, the law of of gleaning. It was Israel's version of a welfare system. During harvest time, a landowner was allowed to make only one pass over the land. What was missed or left behind was available to be gleaned by the widows, the orphans, and the strangers in the land. Gleaning is both difficult and uh, demeaning work. It's the work of the poor. And it is also dangerous work for a young, beautiful, and foreign woman like Ruth. She could be at the mercy of lustful field workers or unscrupulous landowners. But Naomi must be cared for. So Ruth secures the older woman's permission to go out into the fields to glean behind the harvesters. Enter Boaz. Boaz is a relative, a kinsman of Naomi through her husband, Elimelech. He is described as a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech. Boaz is a wealthy and respected man. What we don't learn until much later in the larger story is that Boaz is also the son of 
Rahab. Remember Rahab? She was the harlot, the prostitute from Jericho who assisted the spies sent by Joshua to check out the city and its fortified walls. Rahab and her family were the only citizens of Jericho to be spared when the walls came tumbling down. So Boaz has at least some Canaanite blood, some foreign blood in him as well. He is no purebred Israelite. Remember that. Do not let that slip from your mind. It is critical to the story. Ruth happens into the field of Boaz and catches his attention. God is at work, I tell you, playing Cupid perhaps. While some years older than Ruth, Boaz is attracted to her. But as we'll discover, he is no dirty old man. No, he asks the overseer of the field about her. He's told that she is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. He also learns that she is a very hard worker. So Boaz approaches Ruth and offers his protection. Let's look to the story and lean into the conversation here. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field. Don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this, Ruth bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with the people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And with these words... Boaz has pronounced Ruth the Moabite, the faithful foreign woman, welcome and accepted in the land of Israel. And it is all because of her devotion to the widow Naomi. Boaz sees her kind heart, her gentle spirit, and he calls down the blessing of the Lord God of Israel upon her. Friends, Ruth's story reminds us that we are God's people by faith and obedience, not by birthright or any other circumstance. God welcomes the stranger, the outsider in the land. Now what follows can only be described as the beginning of a courtship. At lunchtime, Boaz invites Ruth to sit at his table to eat fine bread dipped in wine vinegar. He offers her roasted grain, so much food that she has plenty left over. Then he tells his men in the field to allow Ruth to glean from 
already bound up bundles. He tells them to pull stalks of grain out of the bundles and leave it in her path. He is doing everything he can to make the day as easy and as profitable for Ruth as possible. Here's the deal, I think. Boaz is falling in love, head over heels in love. At the end of the day, Ruth returns to Naomi carrying 30 pounds of freshly threshed grain, along with the leftovers from the table of Boaz. Naomi's jaw drops. She is stunned by the amount of food Ruth brings home. She asks, where did you glean today? Ruth replies, the name of the man I worked with today is Boaz. Notice it's worked with, not worked for. A relationship has begun. Look to the screen. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living. That would be Ruth, the living. And the dead, that would be Mara. That would be Naomi. And then it dawns on Naomi. That man is our close relative. He is one of our family guardians. As the story moves forward, it occurs to Naomi that Boaz is in a position to help them even more. The land, the land of Elimelech, Malin, and Kilian lays unclaimed and unused. But it can be redeemed for the family by a relative like Boaz. The nearest male relative to Elimelech can purchase and redeem the land, keeping it in Elimelech's family line. Boaz can become for Naomi and Ruth their kinsman redeemer. And by law and custom, he would also then take Ruth as his wife. The wheels turn quickly in Naomi's mind. She instructs Ruth to clean herself up, put on her most alluring perfume, put on her prettiest dress. With the harvest complete, Ruth is to go into the threshing floor where a celebrative party will be held. She's to hide in the shadows until all have had their full of food and drink, especially drink. She is to watch for the place where Boaz lies down to sleep. Once all are sleeping, she is to go to Boaz, uncover his feet, a euphemism for making a proposition, uncover his feet, lie down there until he awakes, and then do whatever he says, give him whatever he asks. Now, you know what Naomi expects will happen, right? You know? But Boaz is a good, good man. And he refuses to take advantage of Ruth. He refuses to dishonor this young woman whom he respects and admires and loves. Boaz startles awake in the middle of the night and discovers a woman lying at his feet. Let's look to the story. Who are you, he asked. 
I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a kinsman redeemer. That's a marriage proposal. Ruth to Boaz, it's a marriage proposal. The Lord bless you, my daughter, Boaz replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed me earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. And Boaz says yes to the proposal. Boaz intends to buy the land and to take Ruth as his wife. But there's a problem. There is a nearer kinsman, a man who is first in line to redeem the land and take the two widows into his home. Boaz forces the action. He invites that nearer kinsman to the city gate where all important transactions takes place. He also invites 10 of the city's elders to the meeting as witnesses. He explains the opportunity to the nearer kinsman who immediately responds, I will redeem it. Of course he will redeem the land. It is expected of him. It is his duty. And it's a good deal. But Boaz has held back a trump card that he hopes will be sufficient for him to win the day and to win the hand of his beloved to the story. Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the land from Naomi and from Ruth the Moabitess, you you acquire the dead man's widow in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. In other words, you must marry the Moabite woman, the foreigner, the outsider. It's the law. At this, the kinsman redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. He knows that taking in the Moabite woman would cast aspersion on his own family line. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. In front of the elders of the city, Boaz buys the land from Naomi and says, I have also acquired Ruth the Moabitess, Milan's widow, as my wife in order to maintain the name of the dead man with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from the town records. Today, you are witnesses. And then let's continue reading from the biblical story. This is the end of the story, not the end of the sermon. So Boaz took Ruth. She became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And they all lived happily ever after. All right. 
Now, nice little story, don't you think? Nice little story. I mean, celebrating the unconditional love of Ruth for Naomi and Boaz for Ruth. But you'd think the Hallmark Channel would have picked it up by now and made a TV movie. I I mean, maybe they did, and I just missed it. But what's their story doing in this larger biblical story? Why is this story here? Why did it even make it into the Old Testament? What does it contribute to the overarching story? I mean, we can easily take away a few good lessons for living from this very human love story, and I'll leave that work to you in your personal times of reflection and study. But could there be more? I think there's more. There's what I would call upper story activity here. The Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz story does two important things for us today. This little story points us back, and then it invites us to look ahead. First, it points us back, all the way back to Abram and Sarah, father and mother of the Hebrew nation. It is meant to remind us of God's call to Abraham and Sarah, of the divine intention revealed to them, Look, me at, look with me at the words God spoke to Abraham and Sarah. I will make you into a great nation. That's lots of descendants. And I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Friends, if there is such a thing as an interpretive key that opens the door to understanding the whole of the biblical story from creation to Christ to Christ's coming again at the end of the age, if there is such a thing as an interpretive key that opens the door to understanding God's strategy for reuniting the upper story, God's story, with the lower story, the human story, That key is right here in God's call to Abraham and Sarah. And part of this interpretive key we need to hear today is at the very end. God's intention is that through the family of Abraham and Sarah, this nation of Israel, and now the body of Christ, all people on earth will be blessed. All. God's plan, God's intention is to restore the whole of God's creation, bringing every family and tribe and nation on the earth back to God's self, back to the Creator's gracious and loving embrace. It is not just for Israel and the church alone, but for all peoples. It is a wide welcome. Ruth the Moabite, and Boaz, the half-blood prince, son of Rahab, the Canaanite harlot, and her Israelite husband, Solomon. Ruth and Boaz are both foreigners, both outsiders who are welcomed in. It is a sign of much more to come. The God of the upper story is planting seeds that will blossom in the fullness of time. 
Friends, this little story points us back and then invites us to look forward, to look ahead, to the ultimate kinsman redeemer. That would be Jesus. Jesus, who was and is one with the Father. Jesus, Son of God, born of the Virgin Mary, who became flesh and made his dwelling among us, uniting the upper story and the lower story in himself. He was raised in the home of Joseph, who belonged to the house and line of David. Let me take you to the very, very first verse of the New Testament. The words that introduce Jesus into the story from Matthew chapter 1. Look at it. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac the father of Jacob. Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And then we're going to skip down because there's a whole lot more. Skipping down to verse 5. Solomon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, the Canaanite harlot from Jericho. Matthew keeps her name in here. Didn't have to. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, the Moabite, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. Jesus, the ultimate kinsman redeemer, whose death on the cross and resurrection from the grave became a new exodus. That moment when we were set free from the powers of sin and death, that moment we were reclaimed by God's love and then sent forth to proclaim to the world a message of resurrection and hope and a new way of living. Jesus, Son of God, through his lineage, had Canaanite blood and Moab blood pulsing through his veins. And more to say, through his father. And through his father, he is identified with the dying of Jesus. It is through Jesus that all peoples on earth will finally be blessed. And the mission given to Abraham, Sarah, and their descendants will be fulfilled. Friends, it's no coincidence that Jesus' final instructions to his followers were these, go and make disciples of all nations. And these words, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. What I want you to see through this little story today is how wonderful and broad is God's welcome and God's embrace. This little story was actually written and preserved in the Old Testament in reaction to another Old Testament story, actually two books of Ezra and Nehemiah, where Israel, the uh, Judah, really, the southern kingdom, had gone into exile in Babylon. They came back while, they, while the exiles, the nobles and the priests and, you know, the important people were in, um, in Babylon. There were people left 
and they had to survive. And they intermarried with Canaanites around them. And when Ezra and Nehemiah came back, they said, that's not right. They're impure. You must divorce them. You must send your children away. Ruth was written to say, yeah, wait a minute. You're not as pure as you think you are. Let's pray.